Good afternoon, everybody. This is Michael Coyasso, the CEO of OpenSea Direct. As always, uh, a pleasure to have great conversations about the world of live events, tips and tricks, and what can help people do a little better job next time, have some fun talking about uh, the industry. Uh, and I have a pleasure of talking to somebody who I met virtually during a pandemic, like a lot of people did. We had a lot of time to figure out what to do and to chat about best practices and what to do next. And Dave was nice enough, literally, to just reply to my silly uh, inquiries on on the interwebs. Uh, he is a uh, longtime marketing for live events uh, professional and the principal of the Wakeman Consulting Group. And it's great to have him on, Mr. Dave Wakeman. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm, I'm great. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I see this is episode number six. So, I mean... I wasn't the first guest, so I'm a little offended by that. No, no, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was a big fan of I'm Dr. Jay as a kid, so you're lucky number six, brother. Don't worry about it. No, oh, perfect. So that, that gives me like a little bit more flavor then. That's good. Absolutely <laughs> cachet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's great to talk to you. Uh, I always start with basics where you're from, which we'll get in a second. But um, I'm really intrigued about sort of with any guest I have, kind of where their career took them, where they started, where they are now. And I know we alluded to uh, particularly our event organizers try to help out. Um, you did some really good breakdown of uh, studying ticket pricing, which will go over. You know, a, a lot of people, yeah. particularly on that sort of independent level, that's going to be exciting to hear like tips and tricks how to how to think about it because it can be very difficult and fluid, as you mentioned. So first off, tell everybody where you're from. Well, currently I live in Washington D.C. Mm -hmm. But uh, I have lived all I have touched many, many parts of the country. I grew up in uh, northern Georgia, went to high school in Fort Lauderdale, went to college in Alabama, uh, opened nightclubs in Fort Lauderdale uh, and St. Louis and was involved in some in Houston and Chicago. Then wow. I moved to Seattle and I opened uh, the helped open the Experience Music Project, which was a, a project that um, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, started with to express the creativity of American music as expressed by rock and roll, I think, something like that. Yeah, and then right. I moved to New York, New York City, uh, and I got involved with uh, uh, tickets through Americana Tickets. Uh, and people know me in the world of tickets for the work I did with Yellowtail Wines and helping Yellowtail create this experiential marketing campaign uh, that went to 36 cities and kind of helped them uh, – hit like a growth spurt where they grew about 650 percent in one year and also the american wow. express black card so the centurion card concierge program uh and you know that was like i can't even tell you the numbers that was that but it was like over a thousand percent growth in the number of tickets that moved through uh the business it was a pretty good uh, little run there and since yeah about 2000 Seven, I have had my own business because I figured I was completely unemployable. <laughs> so <I was laughs> yeah. like, let me just go help. Let me just go help people. And so that's what we've I'm all been there. Like, we've all been there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So all about now, I just work all about profitability, all about strategy, uh, marketing strategy, brand strategy, and corporate strategy, and how those three work together to make uh, people more money. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and I guess um, I'm fascinated by your your beginnings in nightclubs, uh, you know, not just because I frequent some over the over the decades, but 
just always Haven't we all? passing by. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, at least me, <laughs> no question about it. I mean, anyone who knows me, I could tell you any Northeast city, a club I went to, XYZ 20 years ago, whatever it is. But the uh, I was just always fascinated, too, by the business of it, because uh, yeah. the average city kid has been the one and always heard the good, bad, and the ugly of it. Um, so how did you get into the nightclub world in that sense? So when I was in college, uh, I was taking summer school classes at a place called, uh, it's now called Broward College, but it was BCC, Broward Community College. Yep. And I met a guy called Mike. Uh, and Mike taught me a couple of really important lessons that uh, have stuck with me. But the most important thing, I think, in retrospect, that has uh, really been the most was he introduced me to another friend of his. I, oh, shoot, the name's slipping me now. It's her. Might also be Mike. Uh, yeah, I know. The 20. Oh, years. So he introduced me to his buddy who ran the valet parking at a nightclub in Fort Lauderdale called Trio Nightclubs. Trio, okay. And uh, yeah, and so I went there and I became and I started valeting cars. And within a couple months, the people inside the club, on the inside of the club, they kept they kept bringing me up to other stuff because I just worked. I really worked hard, right? I busted my ass. I'd show up for everything. And that got me involved uh, in, in the club. And um, so it was really just being in the right place at the right time and, and and working hard, right? Which that's not to say every a lot of people don't work hard. It just happened to be like a combination of things paid off for me. Right, right. And then, so to, this is Broward County in Florida, obviously. Yeah, and Fort then, And then this was, um, was it a nightclub where it had the same type of music and pretty similar demo or this night was this demo, that night was that demo? How did that break out back then? Oh, so so this was interesting, right? Because this was like probably the only club of its kind. It was the only club of its kind in South Florida. There's no doubt about it. But So the trio meant that there were three clubs in one. And so one side was like, you know, dance club, like early, 90, early mid-90s hip-hop, uh, dance music. Uh, the middle was like uh, the bridge. It was alternative. So, you know, grunge, uh, yeah. Limp Bizkit, all corn, all that stuff, Pearl Jam, Nirvana. And then yeah. the other side was Boogie Nights, uh, and that was disco. And, oh, wow. and so I had all three clubs in one. And on certain nights, actually, we would transform it into Oxygen, and it became a gay club, the largest gay club in Fort Lauderdale. Mm, so, yeah, that. so it was one night a week, it became Oxygen. Right. And I was so so it had different so it had a different life of its own. It was it was an interesting place. Yeah. So you got the, all kinds of different people, all kinds of different demographics. Um, you, you know, and you had to really like be sharp about because each market is unique, each market is different, each customer wants something from their night that's different, and you had to right. know all that stuff. It was pretty. It was pretty Not, interesting. No, and then from my uh, experience, and we know this for you know my background was in arenas, so you would have a different concert. Or a different live event so obviously yeah. nhl hockey was different than you know hot 97 concert to whatever right so yep. with nightclubs yeah i always found interesting um depending on the demo what they might drink that might be different like their drinking yep. patterns or eating mm -hmm. pattern and then also like how you handle the door meaning like oh this crowd's yep. heavy like tape like uh you know get a bottle service this crowd is like Five dollars, don't care. This is gonna. These people are gonna That's dance and drink right. water. Like yeah. it's like there's a whole thing, right? It's a whole gamut. Absolutely, and for us, it would be different times of year, even because we came up with okay. some of and and they still float around some of these uh, 
ideas that we came up with and we promoted in the mid nineties, they still are in use now. And, and I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but it was like, we, we can't, you know, we did everybody drinks free during spring break. We did oh, girl, wow. ladies drink free during spring break to get the guys in and right. And it would be a $20 cover charge at the door, but you know how like the ec- economics of the thing were that like a bottle of rot gut liquor cost you about three or four bucks. Right. So you're, you, nobody can drink a full bottle of rot gut liquor, um, you know, and like the mixers were cheap because they, you know, they're coming out of the gun, man. And that ain't, that ain't yeah, real right. beer juice that's yeah, right, right. Exactly. In your glasses. It's like, it's nasty. It ain't real Coke. It's like some kind of fake Coke product. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so like these things were, um, the economics on it were unbelievable. And yeah, so it, it, it's nuts. And you had to be really, really smart. It was a great, um, lab for me to learn how to be a marketer right because the guys the two guys i work for um that were like the managing partners of the nightclub a guy called uh, dave townsend who's still in nightclubs and gary smith gary went to uh he became the global cmo chief marketing officer of the uh melting pot so the fondue restaurants that are all over the world Uh, you know and they so they were really incredible um really sharp about customers, really sharp about experiences and really sharp about marketing and like how yeah. those things worked out. And, uh, you know, the stuff I learned in the nightclubs, I joke about it now because I mean, obviously I've had a lot of experiences, but they laid the foundation for everything I know now. I mean, it, it, for somebody who was studying marketing in school and really like love the bit, like the being a marketer and the business of yeah. what needs to be a marketer it was an incredible playground because you got the opportunity to learn things to yeah. use them to get feedback on them and to see what works and what does, didn't work yeah. in like almost real time, you know, and, yeah. and, and so, so much exposure to stuff that it probably took a lot of guys and, and girls I know and people uh, maybe 15 or 20 years to get all the experience that I got probably gotten two or three. Yeah, no, that's great. And it, what what like marketing principle kind of sticks out the most? Like, man, I really learned this in nightclubs that stuck with me. Like, what particular strategy? I love this or setup of this question. No, no, I'm curious. Yeah, no, I'm fascinated. <laughs> well, because it, no, there's a, no, there's a couple, but I I know the the best setup here is you've probably heard the story before is how I learned pricing at the night. Yeah. So, so that's good. Michael's like moving in here. Good with like no, good no. question in here. I had a, I had a question for you on that. I'll let you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but, well, I, there's a couple though, but the pricing one was the biggest one. Um, and you know, people know me now because I'll tell them discounts are for dummies, but the bigger lesson and the one I learned in nightclubs when I was probably 21 years old, uh, yeah. was that, there was this question, right? So we had these things called the party squad. They were Monday evening meetings. Uh, Gary came to the meeting and said, we need to figure out how to raise our check average a quarter, right? Maybe it was 1325 per person. We wanted to get 1350 and knowing the number of people, because we were averaging, I mean, we were probably having a half a million people maybe come through the door or something between three and 400,000. I can say safely. So a quarter a person would be like a hundred thousand dollars in extra money or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it wouldn't be an insignificant amount of money in the mid nineties. And it would be, all, so we were trying to figure out how to do this. And I learned, so I came up with the idea of the question, well, what kind of gin do you prefer? Because and what happens was instead of people coming in and asking for a gin and tonic, that you would say, what kind of gin do you prefer? And they oh, would say, yeah. Oh, like Tangeray and Bombay were, were, t- were, were big at the time. They're still big, right. Great, great gins. Um, 
And so instead of it being a, let's say a $4 drink, cause I don't remember the prices now, it might be a $5 or five fifty or $6. Drink. Totally. The incremental value of that on the, the cost to me as the person who's running the nightclub, you know, involved in the nightclub might be a dime or a quarter, let's say a quarter. So that your profit on that is going to be a dollar 25, a dollar, um, 75 a dollar 50 something like this um you know and so that quarter that you're trying to raise the check average it becomes easy to get after if you sell a few upsells on a gin and tonic and yeah, so that, that applied like rum vodka you know mm-hmm. everywhere right it, you know whiskey, whiskey you know yeah. like every one of those and so event so what happened was we really blew that number out of the water and instead of uh, moving enough quarter, we probably we were able to move it up probably at seventy five cents or a dollar, and that's a lot of that. That then start you start talking about some serious that money. adds up. And then yeah. what happens is instead of people coming, you know, you know, every maybe every other week or every couple weeks, you know, then you start getting people to become regulars. And so what happens when they become a regular is like it's easier to get them to come because of marketing, right? Your marketing, your costs go down, right? And you know, so it was a really, really powerful lesson, right? Because what does that price thing say about you? Number one, it's not about the price, it's about the value, right? The stories that people tell themselves are super important because nobody wanted to be like, oh, I'm just a, a well gin drinker, right? No, I want to be the person who drinks a Bombay and tonic when I go to the club, right? I'm, the, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a Tangeray and tonic person when I go to the you club. You might show right? up for because, something there, your buddies, you know, right. That yeah, whole, right. I, I use the example yeah. of like, yo, you know, I have a couple of Tangeray and tonics. I'm like, I feel better about myself. I'm pick up, you know, I'm going to pick up somebody up and, you know, meet somebody that's like, you know, it's going to be great. You know, and that was the way it worked, you know, so that was like, honestly, the biggest lesson, because it taught me all about branding. It taught me all about advertising. It taught me about understanding the value through the eye of the customer. You know, it talked to you. It taught me about the value, you know, in the relationship to price. It was really, really good. Really, really huge. Um, Other lessons, though, like probably two other big lessons that I learned in the nightclub was number one was the consistency of showing up with your marketing message. Yeah. You know, cause we were, we blanketed the market with advertising and partnerships and uh, you know, billboards and banners and like fly the plane on the beach with our banner hanging off. You know, it was just that like consistency. And there is a formula that I learned from my marketing professor, uh, Mark Ritson, who said a plus B is greater than 2A or 2B. And I saw that in real life, right? Because that means that like if you combine methods, right? So let's say you had a radio ad or a TV ad and you combine that with like flyers and uh, a banner on the beach, that's going to have a bigger impact than just doubling down on your, your, your radio ads because, you know, it gives you just greater impact. And I saw it in real life. And, and so that was a huge lesson that I learned as well. And then the third one was like really the value of doing market research, of understanding the market, right? Because there's this crazy thing that happens when you go and work in a business. It's like you don't know what it's like to be a customer anymore because you're too close to it. So what you think is going to be valuable or or important to people often is not. And so understand needing to understand your customer, needing to talk to the customer, needing to get, get like a good feel for them. That was like probably the third most important one. And I'll tell you, you know, just because I don't want it to seem like it's all success, it came through. And I, I really learned that lesson because of the, the biggest failure we had. And it's like when we went to um, 
Crevecore, which is a suburb of uh, St. Louis. And we had all this market okay. data and we had all of this um, research that we had in theory done, but we didn't know the people. And so it looked like a lot of the other markets that we had entered, but the people were entirely different. So that yeah. when we went and ran the same uh, promotions and the same ideas, it didn't work. It didn't work. It, yeah. it failed miserably because they were a different audience. Um, people would come in, they drink our dollar beers or they'll drink our buy one, get one free. As soon as the promotion um, ended, they would leave. And, and, I mean, you could hear the sucking sound of people leaving out the door. They were moving so fast. Whereas yeah. every other market we'd been in, there'd be people lingering and hanging out. Sure. You'd get people leaving, but you might get another turn or two of people buying regular price drinks. Right. And, and right. it just didn't happen. And that really um, hurt our business. It really, you know, it was just like something we couldn't overcome. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's great. Cause uh, someone knew I was a minor league ball for instance. So you did just learn everything cause you had to do everything. Right. I yeah. mean, from you were pulling tarp to, dealing with concessions, the tickets, the sponsorship sales, mm-hmm. all these things. So, yeah, you just pick up what your concept of what's going on at vis-a-vis the yeah. customer. Now, my question regarding one more with nightclubs, was that the original yeah, dynamic right pricing? Was that the original dynamic pricing? Because my experience or anyone who's been in nightclubs over the last 30 was you have the GA, you have the early bird pricing potentially, you have what you might pay, if anything, at 10 o'clock, but then at midnight it might be 20 or 40 or whatever. I wonder if that world was literally the original dynamic pricing is as we get closer to capacity, we're going to bump the price up like, uh, you know, some artists will go on sale and price high to the secondary market and like maybe come down or not afterwards, you know? Yeah, well, that's actually not like dynamic pricing started with hotels and airlines and all these other like interesting businesses. No, so no, that's true. Yeah. We, just stole, we just stole that stuff, man. That's okay, no, very I good. Very good. Maybe from a live standpoint, but, you know, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, 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 I wish that I could say I stole that, but I, I totally did not. No, that, absolutely not. Oh, that's great. <laughs> no, that's good. It's good. But yeah, we've all experienced it who has ever been to one. So that's cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, you had talked about. Um, well, tell me about like your consultancy before I go into the, the tips you gave with pricing, the um, uh, kind of what work you're doing with arenas and the and arenas, live events and the like, and sort of what you particularly focus on when you're working with, uh, you know, and it seems like you've been all around the world with this, like Australia, New Zealand, uh, Britain, so on and so forth. Uh, you certainly at least have context in these places. What what tends to be the most common um, elements you're helping from a marketing standpoint there? Yeah, I have been very lucky. I've had the chance to go all over the world because of all this stuff. So that, that, that there's no doubt about it. And I would consider myself extremely lucky for getting to do this. Um, how I frame it is that I work with people on strategy and strategy relief really that focuses around driving profitability. Right. Because there's a lot of people who will tell you, oh, growth is the most important thing. Growth is growth. that um, I am a believer and a big, huge believer in the idea. It doesn't matter how much you make. It's how much you keep. Right. It's uh, because there's businesses out there with like profit margins of one or two percent, uh, you know, and they're killing themselves to make one or two percent. Uh, you know, I, I often joke with people. And I say, oh, my profit margins might be like ninety five percent. And it's not really a joke. It's just a, I say it as a joke just because. I don't want to make people feel bad. Yeah. You know, it's all about strategy. And I look at strategy through the lens of, um, I look at, I call it strategy three ways. And so it's the corporate strategy, which is like the sort of 
and the way I describe it is like you're in a satellite above the earth and you're floating around. You can see it all. You can see the full business. Um, things move fast. If you have a, a, the really the only ability is to like kind of guide the entire process, like to know where you're going, but you don't have a lot of functional usage there. Um, you have to like get it down to the next level, which is the which is where the brand strategy is. And that's like you look at things from you're in the Concord. You're still moving pretty quickly. Um, you know, it's hard to change like things really, really quickly. Um, but you get a much clearer picture than you would if you're in the satellite up above the earth. And then the third level is the marketing strategy, right? Which is like sort of like your skydiver. You've jumped out of the plane at 10,000 feet. Yeah. You can move those, you know, you can move those cords a little bit. You can guide yourself, um, you know, but you're still kind of guided by like you've made a plan. You got to stick with it. And then tactics is like driving around the streets of D.C. without your GPS working. Like, yeah. you know, you're in trouble if you don't know where you're going. Um, yeah. You know, you have to make adjustments depending on the circumstances on the ground. You know, if there's like construction on the street, you know, and that's the way I describe it to people lately. But it's, it's, it's it really just comes down to the course of strategy, which is about understanding what success looks like, uh, what market you're going to focus on. What's your value proposition? What resources do you need to achieve success? And what actions are you going to take to drive that? Yeah, you you we had a good discussion relatively recently where um, a misnomer can be uh, when people seek to find who their customer is from a marketing standpoint. Yeah, it might mm -hmm. come into like what can be pretty superficial, like oh, it's 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 all you know Italian guys at a certain height or something superficial, right? Yeah, but yeah. it's more like behaviors, right? I'm, I'm curious to yeah. share with you what your thoughts on people look at it like. Well, automatically this ethnic background or you live this city in this age is like automatically an X fit, but yeah. it's more of like behaviors. Can you share a little bit about uh, your thoughts on that? Of course. So what you're talking about uh, is a difference between uh, segmentation by demographics and segmentation by uh, behavior. And so demographic segmentation is what people talk on and they go, oh, you know, if this person's between the ages of 21 and 30. This is what they do. Right. Uh, this is how they, they live in the city. This is how they act. Um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, it makes the assumption that like, you know, uh, two guys like, you know, I don't know exactly how old you are, Michael, but let's say like in the forties, like me, you know, yeah, like right. we would be in the same. Yeah. We, we act exactly the same, the same way, no matter what it's not true. And the example I use because somebody made a really great slide of it is Prince, uh, Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne have the same demographic, um, you know, background, if they showed up in a demographic segmentation, uh, both in their 70s, both super wealthy, both the divorced, you know, all these things. Right. Yeah. Um, but I would assume that you, you're probably not going to see very many behaviors that they share in common. Right. Uh, you know, and it's the same thing for anybody. Right. It's like, you know, everybody wants to lump millennials all in the same uh, bucket. Now they want to Gen, Gen Z. They want to bump a uh, bucket everybody together. The thing is, is like within any group, there's if you do it that way, you're not taking into consideration variances for taste. You're not taking into consideration variances of income, right? You're not background, right? Uh, you, you know, you're just like leaving a lot on the floor. The way I teach people to do it is to understand, right? Um, look for what's meaningful and what's actionable. So meaningful things in the forms of segmentation, maybe like city they live in, right? Or neighborhood. Um, it could be. Uh, the kind of job they do, right? Because certain jobs are going to have um, much higher risk tolerance than others. And that could be something that's very, very meaningful. 
sometimes uh, age does matter, right? Because like, you know, if you're younger or older, you might not take a certain action. But it's about everything. It's about driving behaviors. And it's about looking for the things that are meaningful and that people take action on versus like these these blanket things that you can just like throw a tarp over and say, everybody that's 25 to 35 is in this bucket and they all are. Right. Basic like tips and tricks on how to price, you know, price an event. Um, Yeah. I mentioned in the last, before you jumped off, I thought there were three interesting bullet points you had in one of your email. One was you're like, there's three sort of concepts that comes up in your brain about this. One is that pricing is easy to do poorly. before certainly two is it's proper pricing demands research and then the third is most pricing is pulled just out of thin air so i guess in each part like break down your thoughts uh in terms of those bullet points with ticket pricing right well let me start with the middle one then because pricing does demand research and what too often comes up and this is maybe the most common uh pushback i get on that idea is that people throw out this idea like oh the cold hand of the market is the one that thing that drives supply and demand drives the pricing uh any of these things and i go well that's true in a commodity but hopefully you're not you're not in a commodity business right so if you're a ticket you're not really a commodity right um if you are selling a an event hopefully it's not a commodity because then it's like what's if you're just driven by price the likelihood is people are going to choose something else um you know so like the first thing is is recognize that what you're selling is not a commodity and if it is then like you know the prices because something's going to drive that anyway so as if there's any point to having a brand and marketing and selling then you need to do research and you can do that in any number of ways, right? I'm not going to give you a comprehensive list, but you can experiment, right? You can you can tra- charge Michael a different price than you charge Dave, right? You, and, and see like what the, what the feedback is there, right? You can um, try to sell in two different places and see if there's like a different price um, sensitivity in one area versus another, right? The example mm-hmm. that I used about the nightclubs earlier is a good one, right? Like you think that the dollar beer is going to have the same reaction in Houston that it would have in St. Louis, but they don't, they have a whole different reaction, right? So experiment is number one. Uh, Number two is like you can bundle or unbundle things and you can see how that contributes to your price sensitivity and your price integrity, right? What do I mean by unbundling? Let's say you have five or six things that, you know, I mean, as an example, I might do something where uh, I call a comprehensive marketing review, uh, you know, and that might include some market research, uh, some strategy work, uh, some focus on branding, some Q&As with the staff, uh, you know, some like tactical right. uh, implementation. All of those will be independent things and I can separate them and charge different pieces for the different components. That's a way right. to experiment and study the prices and see how I can control the price. Uh, you can do something called uh, conjoint studies and, and, and that's sort of where you um, – you, you have a person respond to different uh, stimuluses in your pricing. So let's say you might have two four-star hotels side by side, and one has a pool and one doesn't have a pool, and you ask people what would they pre- what would they pay for uh, each one, and you can figure out which right. ones drive, and that helps you f- figure it out. You can use dynamic pricing, which is a form of uh, pricing research as well, because it kind of con- takes into consideration different factors that might um, be important. So in the case of a ticket, it could be starting pitcher, weight, you know, the weather, um, day of the week, time of the first pitch, right. you know, again, those are experiments, exper- experiments, um, 
one of the best forms of research I try to get people to do is because it's so simple. Um, and if you've got enough people, it can give you some really good feedback. It's called the Van Westendorp uh, pricing survey. Right. It just asks four questions, right? So it helps you decide where um, you're too high, you're too low, where things seem, um, you know, not worth the value or valuable enough you know and it's just like four questions and they'll give you a big hole and they'll tell you exactly where your price can fit so that's the first part the second part is um you know pricing can be done poorly most of the time people pull it out of their their tuchus i mean you know that's the 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 reality is make stuff up right it goes back to that earlier conversation we were having where you're not the customer so you don't necessarily really appreciate what people are value people are putting on things right so they'll say oh my competitors charging x right i had a friend call me about tickets in dallas and he was like going well um, the rangers charge this and the symphony orchestra charges that and like these things i was going they're irrelevant those things are, those factors don't matter at all because people are probably valuing different things there. And, but right. unfortunately that's how people price things, right? They go, Oh, well, um, you know, my son who's sitting next to me here, he will, he will pay $2 for a, a Coke zero. Um, you know, but I might only pay a dollar fifty, so we must charge like a dollar fifty for it because that's what you know the person with the money is going to pay for it. But that's not really true because right. there's factors that go into this thing, right? Like what's the weather outside? You know, uh, where are you at? What's the situation, right? If I, I'm probably willing to pay more if I go to Five Guys than if I just go into the convenient to the Wawa, right? right. You know, it's all these things are at play, and so to just pull the price out of thin air without any consideration of the context it seems re- ridiculous, you know, and further the context now of inflation of people, you know, with still having pandemic concerns, all of these things, they all play a factor in it. But unfortunately people just sort of make stuff up and that's been right. consistent around, you know, uh, across the board for as long as I've been following prices. And like we talked about earlier, that started like when I was like in 21, 22 years old. Um, right. And then the final thing, if we're talking about prices out of thin air and pricing research, the third thing was um, pricing can be done poorly, Yeah, which I think that um, I hit, I hit on that just now, but it is, it's easy to just throw something out there. It's easy to make an uninformed decision. It's easy to make a pricing decision that's based off nothing but your gut, your gut assumption. And all of those are going to be reasons that you're going to leave money on the table. Um, The biggest challenge in my research and in my work is that people set their prices too low. Um, Mm. You might think that's crazy because of, you know, in sports they're often set too high. Um, but in most businesses, they people set their prices too low, and that's right. because of they you know they don't trust the value that they put into it. Uh, it's they think it's easier to sell, but they don't understand that that's undermining the value of their brand, right. uh, the loyalty to their brand, the the value proposition that they're offering. Um, you know, so it's it's just easy to do because people just don't spend a little bit of time thinking through their prices legitimately, yeah. and. I think that, you know, there is, you know, there's economists, they want the most charge, uh, most control over the pricing, but pricing is a role for marketing and the marketing department should have a tremendous say in how your prices are set because they are right. the ones who know the customer, unless they're doing a poor job, which that's a different conversation altogether. Well, yeah, if they yeah, are yeah. doing their job well, they are the closest to the customer. 
right? Because no, they're no. doing research, they're talking to customers, they're doing focus groups, they're there all the time, and they'll understand what the value proposition is. No, that makes sense totally. Um, from my experience, well, two things. One is um, one point you've always made, uh, being skeptical of discounts and the like, I think is very important for particularly like an right. independent event organizer, because I think if let's say you're sort of on your own, you don't have like a whole marketing department or venue experience, mm -hmm. what have you, I would think the common way to think, how can I get more butts and seats as it were, would be very much like, well, I could call Groupon and they've got a list and I can call X place and they got a list. And I would think a lot of that might built in be like, well, give us a discount and we'll shop it out there. But as you mentioned, yeah. that very much can devalue what you're doing because you're looking for eyeballs, but what they're, what did it get you in the end in theory? And then secondly, this idea that, um, and I've seen it in like minor league sports when I was in it, the, the reflex to go down to try to reel people in when maybe the better reflex is, all right, let's stay at this number, but add value to that so we can stay at mm -hmm. 20 or 30 bucks. So instead of going down to 15 or 12 in a panicky move, it's like, we'll stay at 30, but add a t-shirt, add value, add a Q&A pregame with the ex-marketing people for mm -hmm. Sports Business Day, whatever yeah. it is, right? Because then it's like you're adding value instead of going down and that added element might not be terribly expensive or really not a, or really no cost to you. And all of a sudden you didn't cheapen the number, you know, bring it down and cheapen the brand as it were. Right. Um, and I always think, yeah, yeah that's so, a, you being a nightclub is a minor league baseball. Like that was a good reflex. Like let, instead of doing that, let's think of like what can keep us there? What can add the value, you know, if possible. Right. So if I can address that from two angles, right. So the first thing is there was a great book called shoot now biology by a guy called Martin Lindstrom. And what they did was they did a multi-year, it might even be a decade long study of uh, neuro, they call it neuromarketing, which is like just like the mental aspects of what goes on in your head with different okay. offers. And what they discovered was that as soon as you start discounting um, for seven years or t 10 years into the future, you if you stop immediately, you are a discount brand in your customer's head. And what are, the implications of that are that people are expecting a discount. They are expecting, they are waiting for you to drop your price because you've signaled that you will do it. Even if you don't do it, it takes a long time to break that pattern, right? right. So, so the cost to your brand comes in the form of losing price integrity, losing brand equity, um, losing the ability, uh, customer loyalty. But on the other side, I'll give you numbers now. For every 1% in price that you discount, you lose about 40% of, up to 40% of your profits. You know, the, um, I looked at it through, that was the number I learned in, in school. Um, I was by a business school for the um, HBR, Harvard Business Review, that show right. um, for every 1%, it's 10 to 11% you lose. Throughout my career, uh, it's been about 20 to 25% loss of profit for every 1% you drop your price. Um, you know, and I, and I, I put that variance in numbers to the different areas of, of focus, right? Like, so the 10 to 12% was uh, farm goods, I believe they studied. Uh, mine has okay. been a lot of tickets and nightclubs and, you know, and uh, museums. And then uh, right. the number I learned was a lot of premium things. You know? So um, I think each of them could, uh, you know, they, they they tell a story in their own mind. But the bigger thing is like when pick any of those three numbers and you don't want to be on the end of any of them. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, that's right. the bigger, the, the bigger lesson there. 
Um, right. But you, the more importantly was the point you brought up, right? Which is like the knee-jerk reaction is to drop the price. But how can I? How about I add something of value that will uh, keep my price up? Right. I know from in nightclubs and night, minor league baseball is a great one because I know how much it costs to 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 um, to buy a draft beer. Right. And you're and, or a bottled beer. A bottled beer when I was in the nightclub was about sixty four cents. Right. And we would sell it for four bucks. You do the right. math. Right. Exactly. No. Um, and then hot dogs were probably, my experience. Hot dogs were. 30 cents, 40 cents, whatever you're two fifty, yeah, exactly, 50, right. whatever. So, you know, in the Mike end, and get Costco them in still and sell the hot dog for a dollar 50. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, um, you know, so the thing is, is like, think of ways that you can add value. Right. Um, you know, a beer is cheap, a soda, Coca-Cola, right. It's like pennies, um, right. you know, all, add value. It has a high perceived value you can probably maintain your price integrity because again, the numbers on the other side are pretty brutal, right? right. If you start discounting, you've opened up the door to be a discount brand. And that's like, a, you know, that's a long-term challenge to your brand. If you start cutting the price, you're losing profit, right? Uh, you know, because again, if you start out with the idea that most things are underpriced to begin with, if you start cutting prices, you don't have a lot of room to cut because you're going to start losing your profits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a great uh, thing to uh, focus or emphasize because that's there's no question that particularly an indie promoter, that's a kind of a yeah. a, a bad knee jerk reaction. It's like, all right, I got to get more people in here, so let me just discount. Yeah, you know, there could be a way to well, to, to, to squelch. That I was going to say the other thing too about this indie promotion thing is like, what message does it say send about your event that you're sending a um, discount code out, right? Like, yo, I can't get right. enough people in here. So I'm sitting, uh, yeah. you know, if you're going to do something like that, the way I offer it up is like, Hey, do it based on time. Right. Like don't set their discount based on like something that, you know, just, I can't sell it. Say like, look, if I have let's say three months to my event for, if you buy you know, your tickets the first week that they're on sale, I'm going to sell them to you for 25 bucks. Right, right. What well, you see this in, in the newsletter, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Early bird pricing. Uh, you know, so I have been selling a, a workshop that I'm going to do in New York, right? Uh, you know, in September. And I said, look, uh, for people who read this newsletter or listen to the podcast, it's going to be, I think, $250 until June 15th. Right. Get in now because if not, it's going to go up and you know I'm not going to discount it because then I'm going to raise it 300 bucks and I'm going to open it up to the bigger market. You can easily do that. If you have a list, use that email list. Exactly. You know, early bird pricing, you know, um, hold the line, add value, right? Like, so instead of uh, just getting general admission, maybe there's like a VIP area that you have or like a, God, I, just a, for me, a VIP bathroom line. <laughs> yeah, totally yeah. great, right? Or yeah, like, you, you know, skip the line in the nightclub oh. world. You skip the line. It's before ten o'clock. Yeah. Whatever it is, you know, there's a lot of ways to do yeah, it. And that's exactly sense. those are totally easier and better ways than you know than discounting. And, you know, you yeah. may just make sure it has value to your cust your your audience, right? right? Because it sets a bad tone. I, I I don't know. I'm trying to think if I've ever actually used a discount. And I actually, I'll tell you the one time I do use a discount. So I, so here, and here's one because I had a client ask me about this once. And yeah. I, so this was how, how I used it. And this is the only time I use it. Um, I'm almost uh, philosophically opposed to discounting. But of when course. I send out a proposal, 
I will offer a professional courtesy of a, depending on what it is, five to ten percent if they pay me immediately. Right. And, and my client, one client, came to me and goes, "You never, you you tell us never to discount." I go, "Yes, but look what I just did. I just got you to send me a check for fifty thousand dollars." Yeah, exactly. uh, Before we started work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a and reason. So it's a that was idea. worth it. Right. Yeah, that was worth the five thousand dollars to me. Yeah, exactly. Fifty thousand dollars today. Exactly. Fifty thousand dollars today is better than fifty-five thousand dollars broken up into three. Um, or whenever you get it at some know, point. Independent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. Right. So yeah. That, that is the only thing. So if you, you know, definitely use a discount. You know, use a discount in that regard, right? Like, so look, the tickets are going to go on sale. You can have a pay, you know buy now pay later thing. If you pay full price, it's a hundred bucks. If you do the buy now pay later option, it's one twenty five, right? You know, use it in that way. Yeah. You know, you know, and that's a yeah, exactly. uh, that's a wise way to do it. But just to cut your prices and throw out a discount code or like a you know a bunch of flyers with like you know a code that like everybody can use, that's bad because it yeah. undermines your brand. It hurts your brand equity. It under it undermines loyalty. It cuts into your profits. You yeah. know, you lose price integrity. You know, you lose all these things. No, that's right. That's right. Well, that's a great breakdown of that. Um, I know you have to go shortly, but my one question I must have, since you're a big Roll Tide guy, um, I'd yeah, love to yeah. just get your perspective, Alabama Crimson Tide fan. Um, what's up with NIL messing with your program and Nick Saban getting fired up about it? I'd love to hear your perspective. Now, for those who don't know, NCAA, uh, long story short, is now college athletes uh, through a legal decision on the federal level can now basically shop their name, image, and likeness. So they can basically make money, whereas before it was an envelope quietly and under the table and all this crap. Yeah. So the so because of that, Nick Saban's in the news because he talks pretty frankly about what he thinks other teams are doing and uh, how it is good and bad for uh, the SEC or college football or whatever. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, because it's sort of a business angle right now, uh, student yeah. athletes can sort of market themselves individually. Um, how that might impact a program like your beloved Crimson Tide and, and how uh, name image and likes and sort of changes things or your perspective on it generally. So I think, you know, I still remember what it was like to go to college and like the kids, right. you know, might, might not have any money. Right. Like a lot of these yeah. kids came from like backgrounds where they weren't, um, you know, their, their parents, you know, they might only had one parent around. Uh, they might, they might've been raised by their grandmother um, they might have come from really poor backgrounds. They didn't have any money. Um, That's right. And even when I, in the nineties, when I was in college, um, you know, it was it, it was still big business. Uh, as we've seen these TV contracts and everything grow more, to for the kids not to be able to like have enough money to go out on a date or like you know make money off of um, their their images and their talents when everybody else is, it's um, you know it's to me it's unethical. Right. Number one. And number two, it's like it just sort of flies in the face of all this other BS that we get sold about, like, oh, it's a capitalist society and like, yeah, right. all these things. It's really just a form of um, indentured servitude. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and so I don't mind it at all. Um, as far as like how, how Nick Saban's reacting to it. Look, we, we have all seen Nick Saban recreate himself. Many, many, many times, he yes. will find a way to make the system work for him, right? Because the player who made the most money off of NIL rights last year was, I think, Bryce was um, 
what's uh, Bryce Young? Bryce Young. I was going to say Bryce Harper, but Bryce Harper plays for your team. No, that's the Phillies. Fun, yeah. Um, yeah, Bryce Young. Yeah, uh, Bryce Bryce Young made almost a million dollars. So so Nick Saban's going to figure it out just fine. Um, yeah. I think what it what where it becomes problematic for people or where people are like losing their minds over it is because these college sports departments, these college athletic departments, have largely been run very poorly. Right? You know, Absolutely. like I remember when the pan- Absolutely. Yeah, when the pandemic started, you found out that uh, UC Berkeley's um, athletic department was half a billion dollars in debt. Like, you know, and I was like, going, in what world does that make sense? Um, right. You know, the, you know the, these, the, that's where the problem comes because it's infringing on something that, like, there's been ample opportunity to run these things professionally and well, and it has not been taken. Um, now it's going to be challenging because there's changes in the tax laws that made it um, so that like the, you know, harder to donate or you donor, don't write off or yeah, something. I was yeah. going to say holding the donate donors over the barrel and being like, Hey, look, if you don't donate this money to the fund, you don't get tickets. That doesn't work anymore. Right now right. you got NIL. So then like, Oh my God, you know, the, the college athletes are not necessarily wed to us. You have the transfer po- portal where it's like, transfer you can portal. treat a kid mm-hmm. like crap. Right. You know, like the kid can just go and leave and like do or, what any you know, other. The coach student. didn't start me by sophomore year. So I'll just go to a program that will, you know, something simple like that. Yeah. 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 So there's all these factors. And I think that's really where you're seeing people's bloomers get in a bunch. It's because like now the, their ineffectiveness in their job is becoming much more obvious. Right. And like you shouldn't have been able to see it with the declines in attendance and everything else. Um, yeah. So to me, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's new. Do I think that Nick Saban is going to be fine? I think he absolutely will be fine uh, because yeah, yeah. he's recreated himself in ways that other coaches have not yeah. many, many times. Um, but I think the and I think the big challenge, the reason people are screaming and yelling about it so much, is because it's a really a reflection on how poorly like so many people have been doing their jobs. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's that's a uh, yeah. I've I've seen it as a maybe as a fan or just talking to folks in that world where yeah it's amazing i think too it impacts sort of the academic investment of regular students too it's like you know the science department's not getting this stuff and now you have you know the football program whatever driving debt you know so there's a whole just like society how do we afford college <laughs> conversation around how you know if again these yeah. athletic departments be poorly just impacting everything as it were um but I had to leave with that. That's good stuff, Dave. I wanted to hear your roll tide feedback. Definitely. This was good on ticketing, yeah. on pricing. This is great, man. Um, uh, the Wi-Fi uh, cooperated here at the end. So I know you got to go. Yeah. So Dave, Sorry thanks about a lot the for Wi-Fi. No, nah, that's all right. It makes me think like I'm like not tech savvy. Um, and I make the joke that I'm not, but it's, it's wrong. I am tech savvy. It's just that the tech doesn't always cooperate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, right. I'll ask your son if that's indeed the case. But no, I know you're good. I know you're good. He wanted me to talk about the seven dollar buckets of popcorn. So I you know he Well that's he good too. Yeah, that's good soda. Oh no, cause soda it, it's like five five maybe like five pennies to five like cents Oh, he's saying he wanted me to make the point that like it's about a nickel for a soda, but they'll charge you six bucks. <laughs> and he is not uh, wrong. Time. No, he's not wrong, and uh, he's start him right early way. on marketing and profit and profits. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Wait, Dave Wakeman, thanks a lot for your time, brother. I know it's uh, good. Thank you Stay very much stuff for me, and good stuff will be All in right, touch. Take it easy. Thanks right, for having care. me, man. Absolutely, absolutely. Anytime.